Welcome to Tell Me What to Say. This is Drew Kugler. Just a reminder, if you like this podcast, leave five stars as the rating on your podcast app. The truth is that when people search for the podcast, five-star ratings make this podcast easier to find. So any positive reviews that you leave are going to be greatly appreciated. Speaking of positive, though, I am excited to welcome our guest today, Dan Pink, for those who pay any attention to the great writers on leading your working life, you will know him from his, uh, I believe it's five New York Times bestselling books with a couple more certainly to come. And you will also uh, be able to find Dan on his website, which is linkable on my podcast site. However, Uh, There's something else about Dan that I wanted to preview for you a little bit as we get into the podcast. Dan is, for the lack of a more simpler phrase, a really nice guy. And I wanted to tell you a story about that to get us started. When I first um, thought of doing this podcast, Dan was, um, uh, fortunately for me, one of the first people I called to ask to be uh, a guest Uh, Because of his notoriety and his great writing, let's be honest, it's a cool thing to have Dan Pink on your show. Not only is he nice enough to not act like that, but he very quickly said yes. And on top of that, was nice enough to uh, invite me to his uh, home office uh, in Washington, D.C. to record live, which is, you're probably finding, Ironically, it has a much better sound to it, as you're hopefully discovering in a lot of these interviews that we're doing here. So I go to his house, but I made one mistake. I did not take Ari Kaplan, my tech wizard, uh, along with me and tried to, in essence, record it on my own. The recording, to say the least, by the time I listened to it when I got back to California, was a interesting but unusable mess. Um, Now, the nice part of the story is when I let Dan know this, he immediately volunteered and we quickly rescheduled despite his busy schedule as an author and speaker and all the rest and a good busy dad. He immediately rescheduled and we were able to hook up virtually, so to speak, and that is the interview that you're about to hear. So, One of the nice guys, I mean, he, Dan, could literally be the Tom Hanks of uh, great business writers, but all said and done, here is my conversation with Dan Pink. Uh, In today's conversation, um, I have the the pleasure of speaking with with Daniel Pink, Uh, and many of you uh, who are connected to my work at all will also be familiar with with Dan's work. Um, I wrote down all the book titles today. We'll get to those. Uh, But the story that sticks out as a way to start here uh, took place um, now 12 years ago at a place called Kramer Books in Washington, D.C., where Dan was nice enough to meet me for breakfast uh, and was also good enough to just very instinctually respond that the concept of constructive candor um, was something that resonated with him without, frankly, really understanding too deeply what it was. And that thought always stuck in my head. It follows me to this day. 
And it also gave me a bit of courage and insistence to um, try to get Dan as he was nice enough to join in these podcasts. So um, where do we start? Dan, I am uh, have been a fan of, of, of every book. Uh, well, thank you. Own, own it on the, the shelf um, over to my right. Um, and I'm going to uh, come in and out of some of the books a little bit as we talk here. But more importantly than that, um, I, I try to ask the people who've been nice enough to join this cast to get them loosened up a little bit. Um, the following question, and that is, what did you want to be when you were a little kid? Do you have a recollection of, of career? No, it's an yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I think early on, uh, 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 like, like really, re like, you know, like even 10 and before, um, I think I probably wanted to be uh, a baseball player, although I probably figured out by about age nine that it's not going to happen. Uh, at my at my skill level, um, so I, I think that's I think that might have been what it, uh, the, the earliest one. I do remember actually as a little bit older than that, um, wanting to be, like work as like a director, screenwriter, actor. Mm. Believe it or oh, not, three. you were a triple. You were a triple three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was around a time that the movie oh my God, Heaven Can Wait came out. Oh. And Warren Beatty, you know, wrote the screenplay and directed it and started it. And I thought, hey, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so I think that's I think that's what it was. It's a good question. I haven't thought about that for a while. Right. What did you want to be when you grew up? I were... was uh, very clearly with my father is a, a as a municipal court judge in San Diego County, uh, appointed by the earlier Governor Brown. Uh, the pressure was on very nicely from my parents and also from the media, um, having seen the movie Compulsion, mm -hmm. Orson Welles, um, to be a lawyer, a defense lawyer. And then I saw Inherit the Wind, uh, Spencer Tracy and the Spokes trial. Uh, so I always liked uh, uh, courtroom drama. Mm. Uh, but I found out, I, I do know in your biography, it, it, it said, obviously, you went to law school and then swore it off pretty quickly. Um, but I really thought I was going to be a very good lawyer, but I knew that I would suck big time as a law student. Mm. So, so that changed it. But because I got to go sit in my dad's courtroom um, and sit on the bench and sit in the witness stand and, 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 and play court, that's what I was going to be. Um, okay. But the follow-up question is, um, if that's a ball player and then you were going to be Warren Beatty. Uh, uh, yeah, I didn't want to be Warren Beatty. I just like uh, that. I wanted to be the, uh, the, the triple threat Hollywood force. Right. But here comes the other question. What do you want to be now? Jesus. Um, I don't know. Um, you know, I think that that is one of those questions that people – uh, that is always in the process of being answered. Yeah. It doesn't have a, it doesn't have a definitive answer. That is, we are always in the pro that it's a, um, uh, so I don't know, maybe I'll go back to that actor, writer, director thing. There you go. You know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll give it out. Maybe I'll get out of the world, but, uh, um, I don't know. I, you know, I think at some level, it's a very interesting line of inquiry. I think that at some level, you know, the, the question is not what do you want to be, but what do you want to do? All right. Um, and 
And I think that that is a really intriguing question. And in my own life, the question of not only what do I want to do, but even the question of what do you do mm. is, is, is um, I think, more revealing. I do like to hear, though, it's a great question to ask people what they wanted to be when they were little kids. Yep. Um, yep. And, you know, how much if they were given the opportunity to do that now, they would take it. I, I have to say, if I were given the opportunity... <laughs> or if I had the opportunity to direct, write, direct, and right. star in my own right. feature film, I would probably do it. Now, you did the TV show a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, National Geographic Discovery, one of those. National Geographic, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, did, did you get to, you were the actor in that. I'm sure you contributed to the content. Well, it was, an, it was not, it was nonfiction. So, I, you know, I was a, it was a nonfiction show. So I was the host of the show and, and also a co-executive producer. But that's different from, say, writing a screenplay from top to bottom and then directing the whole thing and putting out a two-hour feature, you know, putting out a two-hour feature film. That's true. So people are sitting there listening, thinking, what does this have to do with conversation? And as you know, this, this show is called, and I will have explained in the introduction that I'm going to tape separately about the small funny story about this being our, our, our second iteration of this okay. podcast. Uh, but the show is called Tell Me What to Say, meaning okay. people hopefully tune in um, and learn something uh, about the connection between conversation, human conversation, human interaction, and the path that one goes on in their life. Um, that... Uh, leads me to the question for you. Your five, I'm okay. telling one, two, three, four, five, and an upcoming sixth book. Yes. Um, to me, all, of course, with my bias, all touch on the notion of, of connecting with people uh, and okay. how to do it. The question I had for you, so you started with something called, uh, a book called The Free Agent Nation. Uh, it went on to, to where we met around a book called Whole New, A Whole New Mind. Somewhere in there came The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, uh, which, by the way, was the huge hit of my summer class at USC. As, <laughs> as people were, were uh, reeling through their questions about a career path. Um, and then came Drive and uh, Selling as Human, uh, to sell as human. So my question for today. Yes, sir. Of all that research, indeed. Of all of that, what if I if I really put the proverbial gun to your head? Um, what would you pick as the most important thing, MIT, that someone should take from your research and writing? Jeez. What's the, what's the I don't one? Know. Because there's so much I know. That's a hard one. You know, I sort of like to let, I mean, I'll answer, I'll be a nice guy to answer your question, but I, I'm going to rebut the premise here for a moment. Please Because I think that that is something for, at some level, for, for readers to figure out. Um, I'm not, you know, it's not as if uh, I have some kind of set strategy where each, each book will oh. grow from the same, I, I, not even close. <laughs> I just write what I'm, I write what I'm interested in and what I, I'm right, truly, I mean, mostly like what, what I'm curious about at that moment. Mm. And that drives it more, that drives the choices of what I pursue more than anything else. Mm. As for, so, so there isn't, there wasn't some kind of grand strategy at the beginning where I'm going to write this set of books in this sequence. That's, that's not, that's not how I roll. I don't know if that's how anybody rolls, but certainly not how I roll. Uh, so I really leave it to readers to find connective tissues, be, to connect the tissue among the titles, because I think different people will find different connections. 
uh, because of those connections are so personal. Now, that's my rebuttal of your premise. Right. Now I'm going to now I'll answer your question. Right. Uh, if there's one thing that I think that readers should take away, it would be that all these books circle have to do with the subject of work, right. why we work, what we do, how we work, and I think that what we what is helpful to most of us is is to look at work with a little bit more uh, acuity and a little bit more reverence. If you think about our lives, and this is why I find work so interesting, if you think about our lives, we spend you know half of our waking hours working. Um, and that makes it a pretty good lens through which to, under- to, to, to examine uh, human nature, uh, human behavior, uh, human values, uh, human idiosyncrasies. And so um, I guess if the one, the meta message might be pay attention to work, it's going to reveal something about yourself it's going to reveal something about uh, the people in your world. Yep. Got it. Got it. Thank you. Thanks for both the rebuttal because you're, you were, you were right on both fronts. Uh, that's not easy in answering the question. Um, so, so if I was to start uh, walking you through important conversations in your life, hmm. um, ones that have gone well, Hmm. Uh, had, had, you know, all our outcomes, uh, in our life goes the, goes my premise, uh, are, are driven on the, in the vehicle of conversation. Um, and again, rebut the premise that would be helpful for my future shows. Um, but can you think of, uh, a, a, an unusually impactful conversation along the way of your, um, life career writing? Uh, uh, not yet to Hollywood, obviously. And then I'm, I'm really going to push you. And can you think of one that went especially badly? Uh, I, I know the first one, the, the one that has went especially badly um, is a harder one. Everybody, um, everybody says I've let everybody off too easy in these podcasts up to this point. Yeah. Because as you know, it's about constructive candor. It's about saying the hard thing, saying the unsaid. Mm-hmm. Do that with another human being or the rest of your team. Yeah. So I decided to. I, I don't remember. I don't remember having. You know, I, I think that for me, it's probably conversations that I might have avoided that I should have had ah. is, prob- is is probably more relevant. But as for the as for the first one, um, I think you know. I, I think one of the most important conversations was one I had with my wife about over 20 years ago. Right. And it had to do with this. So I was working in, in, as you mentioned, I went to law school. I'd never practiced law. Instead, I worked in politics and I became a political speech writer in a kind of a half-assed way. And I was doing that and I was working in politics and, and, um, um, you know, it was, it was okay. I mean, some, some days were good. Some days were bad, just like any, anything else. Um, and yet my wife noticed something that um, was just kind of interesting uh, from the very, I didn't know my wife until I was 25 or so, but, but even from the, even from the time I was in college, I was always quote unquote writing on the side. Um, I would write articles for magazines or newspapers. When I was in law school, I wrote more op-eds for the Hartford current than I did actual law papers. Um, even when I had jobs as a speechwriter in government, I was writing magazine articles and magazine columns and newspaper columns 
Um, and in many cases, wasn't even getting paid for them mm. because of ethics rules in the federal government. And my wife and I lived in an apartment at that time in Adams Morgan section, small apartment in the Adams Morgan section of Washington, D.C. And one night I was at my computer. It must have been about midnight. And I, I had a job. I had to get up at six in the morning to go to a job, a pretty demanding job. And yet here I was at midnight um, working on some article. And I think that that was a spark for my wife saying, hey, wait a second. This thing you're doing on the side, I think you kind of like it. I think it's important to you. Maybe that's what you should be doing in the center. And what's interesting about that, at least to me, is that, you know, in, in the, my path to, to, you know, earlier in my life, I, I actually never really, this goes to your earlier question, Drew, I never really said, I never said, when I grew up, I want to become a writer. I didn't, I didn't say that. Um, I, you know, it wasn't like, I, I didn't say, when I grew up, I will never become a writer. Or when I grow up, I don't want to become a writer. When I grow up, I can't become a writer. It just it wasn't on the table. Uh, and yet here was this thing that I was doing all the time. And that's why I think that in some, at some level, the question, the better question than what do you want to be is what do you, not even what do you want to do, but what do you do? And I think that that can be revealing. And I think the conversations, I don't think it was a single conversation. The conversations that I had with my wife about that led me eventually to quit my job and say, maybe I should just write, try to write full time under my own byline um, and see what happens. Hmm. Do you remember at all? I mean, I know it was midnight and I know you had to get up in a few hours, but do you remember at all when she said that your reaction? Um, I, I think my, I, I, my, my hunch is that my reaction was probably subdued and it's like, Oh my God, I never thought of that. I think she was basically telling, telling me something that I probably had realized myself, but no one had ever said out loud. Right. Right. So, so it me- didn't come, it didn't come to me as like a, a revelation. Right. A midnight revelation, like some divine spirit entering our tiny little bedroom on Columbia <laughs> Road. But it, it was more, right. uh, yeah, I, I don't, I have not, I've not had any epiphanies in my entire life. So I'm waiting for one in my old age here. Oh, oh but, but, but you say that, that, I mean, you, anyone who looks at your writing. Uh, looks at any one of the books, they all stand on their own. I, I don't need to blow wind up your skirt to tell you that. They must have flowed. You said it's whatever you're curious about. But mm-hmm. knowing you a, a, a minuscule bit, you're an intensely curious guy who knows a hell of a lot and, 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 and thinks about lots of things. Are any of these books and these, in essence, conversations with your readers, mm-hmm. uh, isn't there an a is it epiphanous? Is that the word? An epiphanous uh, moment where you commit to a book? No, um, there isn't because it works more. It works much more slowly and laboriously and tediously than that. It really does. I mean, if you want the ground truth of yes. how of how my life works, and I think this is true for how most people's lives work. I mean, basically, what you have is you have Stephen Johnson, the writer Stephen Johnson, has a nice, a lovely turn of phrase for this, which he calls a slow hunch. And, and, and I, I think that I've had a lot of slow hunches and rather than instant electric epiphanies. Got it. And I think one can have more slow hunches if one keeps one's eyes and ears open. Right. So how, okay. So now the listener is welcome to my 
maybe dozenth uh, conversation with Dan about writing a book. Um, how does one, somebody out there along with me is thinking, what's the difference between the slow hunch that turns into a whole new mind mm -hmm. uh, and just something they were intrigued about for a while? Good question. That's a really good question. And I have, and actually I can answer that one with action or practices or habits or something like that. What I do myself, and it's worked for me. I mean, your mileage may vary, yeah, listener. Definitely. Is is that uh, I keep a pretty, I, I keep a lot of lists and files and folders of ideas, and you know, I throw in a newspaper article into a literally a paper file. I'm sitting here at my desk to the mm -hmm. to the left over here. Mm -hmm. To my left is down here is a is a file full of like ideas and things. And, um, and I will also keep them in, um, I've become a huge Dropbox user, uh, in the last couple of years. And I've actually started using Evernote now. And basically I just keep, a, just keep ideas of like stuff I'm curious about. Hey, that's kind of interesting. Wow. They're doing, uh, um, uh, somebody says, uh, artificial intelligence is going to replace management consultants. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Maybe there's something there. And, um, and what I'll do, and then I'll have various, like, you know, and, and every once in a while, some of those slow, those little pieces will, will bubble up into a slow hunch. Hey, maybe I should write a book about X. And, you know, and, and what I'll do is maybe every six months I'll go through those files and, and, and check things out. And a lot of times the actual ideas I have for books or something like that are terrible. They're awful when you look at them in retrospect. It's like, why the hell would I want Who's going to read that? And why would I want to work on that? Huh. Just like in the moment, the flush of the initial idea, I thought it was super cool. But from the safe distance of six months, it's like, I'm not working on that. Mm. And so a lot of them just or they're not that novel, they're not that interesting, they're not that remarkable, uh, they're not stuff I want to work on. And so I just go through those files every six months or so, yeah, about every six months, and, and look at it, and a lot of the stuff gets scrubbed away. And what's interesting about that is that some stuff stays. And so some stuff will stay for the first six months pass. I'll go, it'll still be there the next six months. Look at it again. Woo, sticking around. Mm. Woo, it's sticking around. And then you, get, then you know that something might be there. Um, and so that's the first step. Uh, but it's it's long and not epiphanous to use no. your word. No. And then um, for an actual book, what I will do is I will write a book proposal um, mm. instead of writing, you know, instead of like going to Hollywood style to a pitch meeting and saying, this is the book I want to write. Um, I, I will actually write a proposal. It's usually, I don't know, um, not, not super long, maybe 30 to 40 typewritten pages. So call it, you know, 8,000, 9,000 words. And, and I will say, here's what the book is about. Here's who's going to buy it. Here's why it's different. Here's why I'm the person to write it. And in doing that, I learn a lot. So for instance, I have, uh, for this, I just finished another, a new book, but before that I had two other ideas that I pursued. I, I wrote book proposals for them and realized at the end of writing the book proposals that they were terrible ideas. You got and, all, you got all the way through the to me forty pages of course oh my god but but you got all the way through that and went no good yeah maybe I got through like twenty five of, of the forty pages or something like that but I got through a fair amount it wasn't like yeah you know I got through a fair amount on both of them and huh. what I realized is that it either wasn't hanging together or it wasn't in one case it, it was like hmm. I'm not sure this really works as a book. It could work as another project. It's an interesting idea. It could work as another project. Uh, another one I, I got another one I got through and said, hmm, this might require more work. 
a different kind of work on a different timetable. So maybe it's really instead of a no, it's a not now. Um, uh, there was, a, but there was another time of several years ago where I um, uh, sent my family away for two weeks in the in in December and um, and said, you know what, I got to do a book proposal. I got to get this thing done. Just like give me my heads down time. I'll live like an animal for two weeks and I'll get this thing done. And after about 10 or 11 days, I called my wife uh, and said, got some good news and some bad news. The good news, you can come home. The bad news is that I finished the proposal and it's a terrible book. I'm not going to write it. So, but, you know, but here's the thing. It's like you wince a little bit, Drew, and I, and I appreciate that empathy. But here's, 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 the, here's, the, here's the thing. What's worse is going forward on it. Oh. The only thing worse than like writing... 30 pages and saying it's not a book is, is signing a contract, writing 300 pages and realizing it's a crappy book. Yeah. That's a disaster. There is, there is a, there is a famous uh, author uh, who, who I heard directly from who told me that they trying to be gender nonspecific, uh, that they, part of their process is take the first draft, and share it with some of their writer buddies. Okay. And have like a little, you know, a little book club, but of their yeah. own. So yeah, that's a good idea. This person uh, shares the draft. The buddies read it, and these other buddies are really good writers too, uh, of some fame. Uh, and they all came back to their friend and said, "This is really bad." And the writer had to choose to throw out. 50,000 words. Oh, that's a and, lot of words. That's a lot of words because it just didn't work for the group which the writer was and continues to rely on. And mm. then and then the book that got created after that through, again, throwing the family out and living animalistically, um, they uh, it, it was a hit and a bestseller. So... I anyway, as somebody said, it's a it's a it's a Bobby Jones's golf game, a, a, a game I'm not familiar with, but but fascinating to hear of the discipline and the randomness uh, and also the the intention in which this is all which this is all done. And I think that sort of at the at a deeper structure to your broader inquiries, Drew, I think that part of the one of the secrets of life is is deciding what not to do, mm. especially if you come from privilege or relative privilege. And I think that anybody who is born in this country has an opportunity for a decent education is extraordinarily privileged, extraordinarily privileged, both in uh, international terms and historic terms. And mm. so, um, you know, so if you, if you, if you have that kind of privilege, uh, deciding what not to do is one of the most important, some of the most important decisions you'll make. Yep. Wow. So, uh, so I want to ask uh, one more, possibly two more, but but one more question that maybe uh, should get edited back into an earlier thing you said, but I'm going to put it right here, and that okay. is notion of that you couldn't think of any bad conversations and went badly, but this concept of which follows me every day, and I follow it. This concept of avoidance. Um, yeah. So, so play, you know, Lucy for 25 cents in the peanuts columns, uh, for anybody who remembers that pace, play psychologist, 
for me and tell me what you know about either for yourself or from others. Why do people avoid the things they know they should do, especially with the with the seminal value of having good work relationships? Why do we avoid? In general, we we uh, recoil from discomfort rather than lean into it. Yeah, I, I think that's the I think that's the meta reason. I don't think that's a great I don't think that's a great insight. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's part of it. And I, I, I and maybe we also rationalize it, saying you know I could do this thing, but it's not going to make any difference anyway. So why should I waste my time? Right. That could be an argument. It could be a rationalization. I don't know. No, it's I I I I, I have identified. Uh, in my little world, that's that's the group of people who I meet on planes who, you know, want my advice. And then they tell me it won't make any difference. Anyway, I call those folks the, the silent people, mm-hmm. uh, because when push comes to shove, as one person says, I I just want to keep my head down. Yeah, uh, that is both a rationalization and a, a very compelling argument to the extent it affects their behavior so much. Yeah, uh, in that way. Good. Well, I'm trying to I'm in, in, in the process through these podcasts of compiling points of reference for people as they uh, a, as one person says to somehow uh, uh, say the unsaid. Uh, and that um, that's part of the quest of, of this work that I'm doing. So thank you for for that, which takes me to the last uh, the, 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 the last question around some stuff I've read from you. I know this was not your original research, but um, but I have often gone to page 101 of uh, of uh, To Sell as Human okay. uh, uh, because page 101, I believe, is the where you distinguish through some research from a couple of universities about the uh, the distinction between interrogative self-talk oh, okay. uh, and uh, declarative self-talk. Right. Um, yeah, self-talk has been something that even the most demanding clients of mine uh, <laughs> are, are, are befuddled by because they Interesting. Re- Why is that? Well, they realize that, you know, it, it, it catches them at their own game. Uh, if we, and part of the work that I do is helping people not journal or anything about their self-talk, but certainly people can remember what they said to themselves under certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. But when these high level, high ego, high financial people say to me, well, I don't think people can change. You know, we, we, uh, we analyze that for its effect on their behavior and they basically, you know, resign themselves to the fact that they are creating a self-fulfilling prophecy of what's going to work and what isn't. And they don't engage, they don't ask questions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My point though is, you were the first one, that page, and, and your writing was the first one to illuminate the difference to me, uh, which I've carried aggressively forward, between do you make statements or do mm-hmm. you ask questions? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can, you, can you jump, expand, reinforce uh, any of that? Because I think that, to me, that's the most, one of the most important takeaways of, of what I've read from you. Well, sure. I mean, this comes from some... <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry about that. This comes in some um, some pretty interesting research on this question, as you say, of, of self-talk, which is 
what what do we say to ourselves? And, and, and I mean that literally. So if you are uh, about to engage in a, some important encounter, let's say you're uh, you're going to pitch an idea for funding for a business or something like that. And then as you're waiting out there, people do, as you're waiting out, say, in the lobby, people do talk to themselves. And what people typically will do, often will do, they'll say, you got this, you know, you're, you can do this, very positive, affirmative. Yeah. And what the research shows is that, that I, that's actually better than doing nothing. Uh, it does give you a little jolt of energy and buoyancy. But it might not be the best thing. The best thing, as you say, might be, something called interrogative self-talk, where you say, can you do this? And if so, how? You turn that statement into a question. And the reason I think is, is interesting, and I do think that it goes to conversations as well, mm-hmm. is that questions by their very nature elicit an active response. So if I ask a question, even if it's a rhetorical question sometimes, um, people have to respond. And when you and that gets their wheels turning a little bit more. And the same thing is true when we ask questions of ourselves. Our wheels have to turn a little bit more. And so if I say to myself, if, if I'm a, a fledgling entrepreneur raising money, say to myself, you know, you can do this, you got this. It's, it's, it's good. It's better than doing nothing. Right. But if I say to myself, can you do this? And if so, how? Um, that's better because what I have to, if I answer, I say, yeah, I can do this. Um, I have, my research is, is airtight. Yeah, I can do this. Um, I got to make sure that I don't talk quickly or that I invite questions and that I even ask questions myself. Uh, can I do this? Yeah, you know, this one guy I got wind is really uh, down on this one aspect of my business plan. So I've got this great uh, rebuttal for that that I got to make sure that I use. What am I doing there? I- I'm preparing, I'm rehearsing. And so this thing that it's a little quieter asking yourself questions is actually more muscular than the seemingly muscular, you can do it, you got louder, you, you can do this. Um, and I think it has to do with the power of questions because questions are more interactive. Questions elicit an active response. That's right. And when you're using them for yourself, they, let's put it this way, the declarative nature of statements absolutely presumes and, and almost freezes into place a determined future. Mm. what's going to happen oh that oh that'll never work mm-hmm, okay mm-hmm. well then why would you want to prove yourself wrong yeah we don't like being wrong i think so so what i i try where i take this and slide it aggressively is into people who are training for as you said for a presentation you know the number one thing people say you know this the jerry seinfeld joke of of you know, the number one fear is that that uh, is speaking in front of a group of people. The number two fear most people fear is death, which means you'd rather be in the casket than giving a eulogy at a funeral. Right. Now, funny line. Funny. <laughs> so, so, and the only planned humor of this call. So, the, um, the, the point, though, is, is I talk to them about the difference between professing their nervousness, which is a statement. It is always a statement. Oh, I'm so nervous. I'm going to pee my pants. What I've literally had people uh, say or worse. Or do they have a set of questions which can launch them into healthier preparation? Right. Great. Same Uh same idea. And I have I have taken that very squarely from from uh, to sell as human. So there's also on that particular issue. There's some actually very good research. I think it's from Allison Wood Brooks at at uh, at Harvard showing that one of the best things you can do when you're nervous is to reframe the nervousness as excited. Don't right. say I'm nervous, say I'm, I'm excited. Right. That's right. And that, that's another way of 
you know, just it's another kind of, of reframing of your thoughts in the same way that questions put your thoughts in a different frame. Yep. Um, you know, you, it's a different, you, you go down a different tunnel if you start with the premise, I'm excited versus I start with the premise then that I'm nervous. Yep. Excellent. So this podcast, as we begin to conclude here, uh, this podcast should air uh, sometime in September. Okay. Uh, is that at all timely for pre-ordering of, of your new work? It's never too early to pre-order a new book. What, uh, what, what does the reader, what can the reader be expecting exploring uh, this time? Well, I've got a book coming out in January. It's called When... The scientific secrets of, of it's called when the scientific secrets of perfect timing, and it looks at all the when questions we make we have in our lives. When should you switch careers? When should you get married? When should you get serious about a project? Um, uh, what kind of effect do beginnings have on our behavior? Midpoints, endings. Um, when should you work out during the day? Uh, well, when what kinds of when and what kinds of breaks should you take? When should you in a given day should you do certain kinds of work? And uh, the, the book will be out in early January 2018. But of course, enlightened readers can pre-order it anytime they want simply by going to your favorite online or offline bookseller okay. and asking for when the scientific secrets of perfect timing by Daniel Pink. There we go. Well, good. Well, speaking of that, uh, whenever I uh, have imposed upon you um, uh, back to 2005 and then up to a couple of years ago, uh, as I tell people, you have been both uh, genuine and generous. Uh, well, thank you. You are not one of those guys who says, yeah, let's keep in touch. You actually, uh, you actually, as busy and prolific as you are, you do keep in touch, uh, or at least take my emails. And I thank, <laughs> you. And I, and I thank you sincerely for that. And uh, the, the story of this being the second time through will hopefully uh, emphasize that even more. So thanks for hanging out with me today, Dan. My pleasure, Drew. Always, always a good time. <laughs>